Welcome to this all-listener question episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling. On this show, each week, we cover topics relating to building and growing ambitious startups using a sustainable approach. And I'm excited to hear from each one of you out there. We have a couple voicemails to kick us off, and then we'll dig into some text questions. And I'm going to be flying solo today. I've been doing several Q&A episodes over the last few months with guests, but I wanted to spend some time today and really dig into a few questions I've received. Also, I wanted to let you know that I've recorded two exclusive episodes of Startups for the Rest of Us that are available to subscribers of the email list. The first episode is called Eight Things You Must Know When Launching Your SaaS, and the other one is 10 Things You Should Know As You Scale Your SaaS. So I cover both the launching and the scaling phase. And if you go to startupsfortherestofus.com, anywhere on that site, you can subscribe to the, the email list on the homepage or in the, the widget in the lower right. You will get both of those episodes. Those are solo episodes with just me going through bullet points and, and thinking through lessons that I've learned in 20 years of entrepreneurship. And they also come with these, these really nice PDF guides that are, are well-designed and kind of summarize each of the points so that if you listen to the episode and you take something away from it and you want to refer back, you have something in writing to jog the memory. I think both these episodes and the guides turned out really well. And I think if you're a fan of this show, that, that you'll enjoy them too. So you can just head to startupsfortherestofus.com, sign up to be on the mailing list, and you'll get those episodes in your inbox. So let's kick off with our first question from Arturo Ceballos. Hey, Rob, this is Arturo Ceballos out of Fresno, California. And I actually know you back from the Bitwise days when I was first learning how to code. Anyways, since then, I've learned how to develop apps, and I've tried and failed at launching a handful of these now. And it wasn't until I started listening to your podcast that I realized that I was probably going about things the wrong way. Your podcast has been instrumental in changing the way that I think about starting a business. And this time around, instead of starting by writing code, I'd like to do things your way. So I'm now an online marketing manager, and I have an idea around helping other online marketers make better decisions with their ads by giving them context around what is and isn't working for them. There are a couple people in the market that do this, but not in the way that I'm imagining. I think there are a lot of ways that we can innovate in this space, and I want to see if my idea would actually help others. So to get to my question, I listened to your podcast, the episode that came out last week around the first six stages of SaaS growth. And in there, you mentioned that you were running Facebook ads during your drip pre-launch to different landing pages in order to test out different value propositions. This is the stage that I find myself in right now. I'm assuming at the time your goal was to build out an email list. If so, what is it that you were offering people in exchange for their email address? Were you just telling them that you'd notify them when Drip was ready? Or how did you know that people would pay for Drip or that the idea was even worth working on before writing any code? You've probably answered this question a million times in the past, so I'm sorry if I'm bringing it up again, but any advice or resources would be super helpful. I really thank you for your time and I appreciate everything that you do with the podcast. Keep up the great work. I know it's helping a ton of other people. It's definitely helped me. Thanks. It's a good question, Arturo, and, and thanks for sending it in. Congrats on your progress. I do remember uh, remember you from Fresno and remember you going through the coding school at GeekWise. And uh, it's kind of cool that you're getting into marketing because I tell you what, there are a few things more powerful in the startup space than a developer who knows how to market. Those are two skills that 
most people pick one or the other and, and learning both and at least having the headspace of both is, is pretty incredible. So there's kind of two answers to this. One is what I did. And the second is what I would do in your shoes. And I, I think they're related, but they're not identical, if that makes sense. What I did with Drip was I went out and pre-validated that at least a few people would be willing to pay. At the time, it was, I said, $100 a month. It actually wound up being $50 a month for what I had in mind to build at Drip for the vision that I had for the product. And I did that by getting into email conversations with 17 founders and other people I knew through MicroConf. And this is really the first time that I used my network and my audience to grow my software companies. I, of course, had used the audience I had built over... Well, by then it was, what, seven, eight years of blogging and podcasting. I had used that to offer my book, to sell tickets to MicroConf, to, I don't know, I created a couple courses about some different things. So I had used that personal brand side for that kind of stuff, but really all the software, almost without exception that I had built before then, I hadn't sold much to my audience and hadn't really used my network to expand that because it was in these bizarre little tiny niches for a lot of the stuff. There was a, a job board for electricians. There was kind of a wedding website builder. It was this stuff that where me talking to other founders at MicroConf really wasn't going to help or me talking to the, the audience of startups for the rest of us wasn't going to generate any kind of customer base. I did a little bit with Hittail, but it really didn't, you know, it was tens of customers from my warm audience and the, the rest was just, it was hustle and it was marketing and it was writing copy and support and all that stuff. So all that to say, with Drip, I did utilize my network and my audits for the first time. But if you don't have that, then you just, you have to go back and do what I did before I had an audience, which was to hustle and put in the legwork and, and have the conversations. So I had 17 conversations. I had 11 people say, yeah, I'd be willing to, to try it out. And if it works, be willing to pay that price point that you mentioned. And so that was the validation for me. And, you know, I heard Jason Cohen did this with WP Engine and he wanted 40 people to give him the thumbs up. And he said 40 people at 99 a month. And that was his number. I said 10 and I just picked it randomly. I don't think 10 is right or wrong. I don't think 40, you know, more is better, but it's just how much time do you want to spend before writing code? Once 10 had said yes, that's when I approached Derek Reimer, who was contracting for me on Hittail, and I said, hey, do you want to build this other app? You know, you, you're not doing full-time work on Hittail. And he said, yeah, let's do it. So we met at uh, the Ironbird Cafe there in Fresno, and I talked him through. I said, here's what I think it should do. And, you know, I have some validation. Let's just talk through some screens and then go off and build it. And so, you know, in retrospect, was that enough validation? Probably not. I think I was a little overconfident in my own ability to market it. And I was probably overconfident in my network and my audience that I would be able to, to sell it to them. I mean, there is this thing of the, the curse of the audience is, is how I refer to it, where if you have an audience and you've been selling them books and courses and stuff, and you think that you can sell them software in the same way, almost without exception, it doesn't work out that way. It is much, 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 much harder to sell a SaaS or software of any kind, but especially a recurring subscription, because it's just, it's not an impulse purchase. It, people have to have it in their workflow. A lot of these courses people buy and they never read. They, it's aspirational. Whereas if you're not paying for a SaaS every month, if it's aspirational, you cancel it. It's just a whole, it's a whole different ballgame. And I've seen literally dozens of info marketers who have projections or think that because they've been marketing courses and, and coaching and all that stuff that they can do the same with a SaaS. And eventually you do figure it out, but it's it's different. I would say it's harder. It's a lot harder to, to get people to try it and to get people to, to stick around. So then to circle back on your comment about Facebook ads, 
in my mind, I had already validated it, right or wrong, and probably more on the wrong side. And then once we launched, I think some of those people did wind up using it and other people started using it and said, hey, this really doesn't do much for me. And of the 11 who said yes, I think four or five probably wound up being paying customers. And I do kind of shrug my shoulders like, I don't, I don't know, was that validated or not? And I think that you can never get to 100%. Right now you're at 0% or you're maybe at 20% because it's an idea in your head. And how do you get to 30, 40, 50, 60, even 70% is probably pretty high, 70% certainty. I was probably 70% certain, but in reality shouldn't have been. And so then I was then trying to build the email list. That's what the Facebook ads were for. And I was trying to do that. I call it concentric circle marketing, where on the circle on the, the inside is it's your audience, really. It's people you can reach directly on Twitter via email or even, you know, they're on your email list. So you can reach out directly to them. And then the next circle out is your network. It's people that you may not be listening to, but you do know and that you can reach out directly and say, hey, would you be willing to try this? And then that third layer is your network's audience, network's audiences, which again, if you know people who host podcasts or if you know people who have any type of audience, well, then you can go on their podcasts and get some distribution. And then the fourth circle out is cold. And that's what I was doing with Facebook just to see if people cared enough about the value that we were trying to provide to provide an email address. I was promising nothing except for some value. I was basically saying, you know, improve conversion rates on your website or capture emails better than any other tool. It was that type of stuff because Drip originally was really just the, the little Drip widget. It was the email capture widget before, you know, it was before Sumo and Optin Monster and Bounce Exchange. It was before all those. There was really no off-the-shelf JavaScript email capture widget. And so I was testing things around that and did get ideas of which converted most. And I tried a bunch of different copy and, and you know, it was a fun little experiment. But I didn't assume that that was validation because that was just someone being intrigued enough to enter an email which isn't a big commitment. If I had not already validated it, I would have either gone straight to my network or my audience. And if I didn't have one of those, I would probably have done cold outreach. This is where I'm getting it to being in your shoes today. I would probably try to find other marketing managers who you think are in your same role. You can find them on LinkedIn. You can cold outreach and you say, hey, I'm a bootstrap founder. I'm starting a new software idea that helps you get more insight into your ads, wondering if I could literally chat with you for 15 minutes, or I could even ask you questions via email if that works better for you. And I think that that cold outbound outreach, of course, you have to send a lot of emails in order to, to make that work. That's one way to do it. Or if you have a little bit of budget, obviously running Facebook ads to a landing page and saying, I'm, but I would be personal about that one as well. Be like, hey, I'm Arturo, I'm a bootstrap founder, and I'm thinking about launching a tool that kind of does this. Are you interested in this? Just enter your email and let's let's find a time to chat. Or you could put a calendar link right there and embed it. Just be like, book 20 minutes with me. In addition, if there are already other tools that are doing this, that's good, right? I would lean into that and not try to call your tool something else. I would, I would put it in that category of whatever tool it is, the advertising insight tool or whatever. I would go to their forums and I would go to the Facebook groups that talk about those tools, whether it's the marketing manager, Facebook groups, the forums, get into the Slack channels, whatever. And A, there's two things. One, you want to observe and you want to see what are people complaining about about these tools. Is anyone saying, oh, I really need these XYZ insights? And that's the tool you know, you're thinking about building. And if they're not, if you participate for a bit and then you just ask some questions like, hey, I'm having trouble as a marketer. I can't get this XYZ insight into my ads and I would like more context around it. Does anyone else have that problem? And you could just couch it like that. 
just to see if everyone weighs in. Because if you say you're selling something or you say you're building a product, people are either going to be put off by it or they're going to be like, oh yeah, that's a great idea. Do it. You should do it. And they want to be encouraging. But if you just say, I have a problem, do you have it? Yes or no. Then you can get thoughts, feelings, and it's, I would say it's more unbiased. You know, it's less biased information and thoughts because you don't really have skin in the game and they're not going to offend you by saying they don't. They're just not going to chime in, right? And so at that point, if a few people respond, well, now you have some names, you can DM them and say, hey, you know, I had this problem. I'm actually thinking about solving it for myself. Would you be interested in talking about it? And so those are all the ways. And again, should you get 10 people willing to pay you $50 a month or $100 a month? Or should it be 40 or should it be five? It's just, it's just a made up number. To me, five just doesn't sound like enough. I don't think you've proven a market with five people telling you they'll pay. I think 10 is reasonable. I think 20 is better. I also had, I mean, when I had 10 people saying yes, I had an email list of who knows, 10 or 12,000 people at that point. So I knew that if enough people validated, I could reach a lot more fairly quickly who I thought would be customers. And if you don't have that luxury, then maybe that's something that that you think about that you want to validate it more or that, you know, by the time you launch, if you have 20 people willing to pay you a hundred bucks, that's $2,000 in MRR. Now it won't all come through, but even if half of it does, that's still a thousand dollars in MRR out the gate. And that may be worth the time up front to land more sales kind of in advance, so to speak. And then there's the, there's a whole other conversation here about should they write you a check that you don't cash? Should you take payment and use it to pay for the app? Should you take payment as a commitment to this and that? And we've actually covered that topic. You can Google that because it's in the transcripts. I don't think I want to rehash that here because I've already taken, taken a bit of time answering this. But thanks for the question, Artura. I hope, I hope you keep me updated on your progress. And I definitely wish you the best of luck getting this going. My next question is from Hare, and I apologize for mis- mispronouncing his name, but you'll hear him pronouncing it in the voicemail. Hi, Rob and guests. My name is Ger Apeloren, and I'm one of the co-founders of Routine Factory. Routine Factory is a set of tools that helps people with a learning disability and autism spectrum disorder to be more self-reliant. Our main customers are assisted living facilities and workplaces. We are growing rapidly in our home country, the Netherlands, and our info boards have less than 1% churn per year. So I would say that we have a good amount of product market fit. One thing that bugs me is that there is so much of the market that we are not serving right now. Not only because we are leaving a lot on the table, but also because we hear a lot of stories via our customers that Routine Factory is making a big difference for their clients' self-reliance and confidence. Care professionals are very hard to reach over the internet. Word of mouth is extremely important, but that is very hard to get started. With a few customers that we have, I do try to motivate them to write about their experiences on social media, etc., to get the ball rolling. As for my question, what would you do to grow internationally if you were standing in my shoes? Anyway, thank you very much, and I hope to see you again in Dubrovnik later this year. Oh, by the way, if the answer is find partners, I would like to follow up with a shout out for people that want to get started with an already proven product. Just drop me a line at info at routinefactory.com. Thanks. So thanks for that question. A couple things, a note on Dubrovnik, which is uh, MicroConf Europe that was planned for October of this year, 2020. We have had to postpone it due to COVID and that's it's now scheduled October of 2021. We hope to still have an event in Europe. It would most likely be in London in September. And we're obviously playing that by ear like, like everyone else is. It's interesting. I was not thinking about proposing that he find a partner in a different locale, but I think that's an interesting enough idea that I, I left that part of the voicemail in. 
obviously, if you're interested in reaching out to him, uh, he left his info in there. I think it was info at routinefactory.com. So, of course, partnerships would be one thing I would entertain. I think the other idea, I, I was thinking of two different approaches. One would be to pick a country that's close to you, that's culturally similar, that you feel like you have insight and it's easy pickings. And it's going to be probably another small market. You know, I'm imagining, I'm comparing Netherlands in my head to the United States as an example. And those are going to be culturally quite different, but the size of the market is going to be substantially substantially different. The U.S. is going to be much, much larger with care facilities. So... When I think about, you know, you going to, to a bordering country that maybe you feel like you have more insight into, that's going to be, I'm guessing, an, an easier transition, especially, you know, it's in the EU. There's just a bunch of stuff that makes that easier, but it's not going to be nearly as big of a market. So that's the first approach I would think about. And the second one, of course, is to say, hey, what's perhaps the biggest Western market for this? And it's pr- I'm guessing the, the United States, I don't have any knowledge of this, but just purely based on population, looking at English-speaking markets, I think that that, that would be a, a good assumption. And then figure out how essentially to start get building word of mouth in, in the United States. And I don't know all the trade-offs there. My gut would be to go after the larger market. I think the, there are some drawbacks there. Obviously, it's going to be perhaps more competitive. It's also going to mean that your the support, the hours, you're going to have to hire someone further west in order to have hours during U.S. work hours. And, you know, perhaps there's, you know, you're not going to be able to charge in euros. I shouldn't say not going to be able to. It's not going to be ideal for you to charge in euros. That's going to be kind of a yellow flag for folks. There's just going to be a lot of adjustments, I think, that you'll have to make versus going after a much smaller market near you where you, again, it's in the EU and you can still charge in euros, probably don't need to change much about what you're doing today. And you may already have, you know, there may be care providers that reach across the boundaries, right? If they have five facilities, maybe there's some in the Netherlands and some some right next door, you know, in a neighboring country. Those are some pros and cons that I think about. But when whatever you do, whichever approach you take, the way I think about getting into a new market like this is A, are there influencers are there, and there may not be, but that's just what I would look at, right? Are there any podcasts or blogs or publications where getting a mention would make a difference? And then strategizing, you know, it's not a cold email of, hey, mention me, but strategizing, how do we start that piece of it? You said they are hard to reach online and that's that's fair, but are they anywhere online? Like, are they in these private Facebook groups, private Slack groups, forums? You know, it's places like that where you can hang around and be part of the community, much like what I was talking about with Arturo. And you can participate and kind of not be overt that you have a product, but just kind of learn the market, learn the space and get a little bit of, of a reputation. And that may, not, again, that may not be possible either. They may, there may literally be, you know, no forums for this. So in that case, then I would seriously consider doing cold outreach. I mean, this is really what cold outreach is made for, right? It's for folks who are not online often. Um, I say not online, of course, they have email or a phone number, but they, you know, are not spending all day on Quora and Twitter, like some of our audiences are. And so that's where getting good at at cold outreach. And the thing, the advantage you have is you, you actually, it sounds like you have something pretty unique that's working and you have a reputation in a geographic space. So I know you can get testimonials and I just, I think your it sounds like your product is pretty mature and it solves a real pain point and it helps people. And I think that's, that's a big deal. So if I were to think about entering, and this is probably the same strategy for whether you were to come to the United States or just go to a country, you know, right around you is, is it's like when people aren't online that much, how do you find them? Well, you can email them, you can call them, you can go to local events, right? Like trade shows, obviously right at this moment, 
that's not happening. But in six months, in nine months, like that's that's a way to reach them as well. And some people, I, I hear some people, you know, scoff at the idea of going to in-person events, but I'm personally, you know, involved with a couple companies who before COVID were just killing it at these offline events because their audience really doesn't gather online, but they gather offline once or twice a year at a couple industry events. And, you know, you pay 10 grand and it to get a booth and it feels terrible when you do it, but then you get 10, 20, 30 leads that you close and, and you have to have the pricing to make this work, right? You can't be charging $10 a month to make an app like this work with this type of sales process. But assuming you have that enterprise price point, I think that there are a lot of, you have a lot of options in, in terms of expanding. So hopefully those thoughts were helpful. Thanks again for the question here. My next question is from Davis, and it came in through Twitter back in January. Man, it seems like a lifetime ago, pre-COVID times. Davis, sorry it took me so long to answer this. Davis says, hey, Rob, I sent a voicemail in a few months back, but I don't think it ever aired. And actually, there was a voicemail that came through that was all static, and maybe that's what happened. But he says, my question was about referral slash affiliate programs. We have many customers asking if we have one, and we do not currently. Do you have any experience running a successful affiliate program? And the answer is, yes, I do, but I've seen people do it more successfully than I have, so I can talk about what they, they've done. But then he follows up and he says, my concern is that the people who would sign up and share their affiliate link are mostly the same people who would share our site anyway. So we might end up paying for the organic order mouth growth we would have gotten anyway sans affiliate program. But on the flip side, one affiliate sending their link to their massive mailing list could be a huge source of traffic and customers. And here are my thoughts. I think that... Some people will share it organically and others will essentially want an affiliate program and they won't share it unless you have one. So I think that if you have people asking and they are willing to share it, then yes, I would set one up. Now, there are some folks like running an affiliate program and just starting it and having a link available, almost no one is going to come in who has an audience and promote your stuff. This is more like business development. At this, this point, it becomes enterprise sales or at least having a big network or at least having customers with audiences. There's a certain luxury to marketing to other internet marketers, um, as we saw with lead pages, for example, in the early days where Clay Collins built lead pages and a bunch of the customers were internet marketers with audiences. And so, boom, it was just like one, two, three, set up that affiliate program, line up the webinar for next week. And that was the playbook. And that is a very unique conflux of things. Because if you, let's say, build software for construction firms, then whether you have an affiliate program or not, your customers probably aren't going to be sharing with their massive audiences, you know, their construction firm. So in that point, you have to do probably more of a reseller or an agency model if you need like implementation. So back to the, the original question, there are some dangers with affiliate programs and I think it's not what most people think. Number one, the danger, one danger is you spend a bunch of time implementing it and barely anybody uses it. The other is that I've heard this phrase used by someone who, who had seen the books of a popular SaaS app that has used a lot of affiliates and a lot of webinars. It's not, it's not lead pages, it's a different one. And the, the person told me, They've built a large business in terms of ARR, but it's one of the least profitable SaaS companies I've ever seen. And the reason was is because they have this enormous affiliate commission. And in internet marketing circles, giving away 30%, 40%, 50% commissions on an ebook or a course that really has no, no or very little marginal cost can be standard. I mean, back in the day on, there were kind of these trashy affiliate marketplaces, they would have a commissions of you know 70%. It's like, you take 70 when you make the sale and I only get 30. That doesn't work with SaaS. 
and and if you're solo and you build something to 10, 20, 30K a month, okay. Yes, you can give away kind of as much as you want. But, you know, SaaS net margins kind of at scale are, let's say 30, they're 20 to 50%, 30 to 50%. I mean, if you build a, a SaaS company that's doing 10 million bucks a year and it has a 50% net margin, like you are doing very, very, very well in terms of profitability. And if you're giving away 30% or 30 plus percent of your MRR to your affiliates forever, you know, if it goes past the first year, some of these folks, you know, you limit it at a, at a year and then that shuts this down. But if you literally say perpetual commissions on anyone you bring and it's 20 or 30 or 40 percent, you can build a SaaS business that is barely break even or that really just doesn't have doesn't have the profit that most SaaS companies do. And so that would be something that I would think about. And I've actually talked to some founders who are doing affiliate stuff, but they're being careful not to have all their eggs in the affiliate basket because they don't want 80, 90% of their customers to essentially have this massive lack of profitability, you know, or bare, being barely profitable. So that's something that, that I think you need to certainly think about. In addition, I mean, I guess circling back, if you have customers who, who do want the affiliate program personally, I would set it up and figure out, you know, is a 15 or a 20% affiliate commission, is that viable? Is that respectable? You know, is that enough in your space? Are competitors doing it? What are their affiliate commissions? You know, see what you're comfortable with. And, and if it has to be 30%, I would say 30% for the first year or for the first 18 months or something, you know, some time limit on it. So you're not giving away effectively the vast majority of your potential profit on every customer. And then once you do set it up, that's where the business development piece comes into play. You figure out your network, you figure out you figure out if anyone in your network has an audience that would potentially make good customers, good prospects for your app. And you can also do some cold emailing. I remember doing this with Hittail, which was an SEO keyword tool. And I reached out to several rank trackers, which are in essence, complimentary apps. And I sent six or seven emails figuring I'd get zero or one response. And I got six or seven affirmative responses immediately. And that was, it was literally a joint venture. I just said, we're not going to build anything. We're not going to integrate, but let's just email our respective customer bases. Here's how many customers plus the marketing list we have. And here's how many you have. And I said, you know, you can either, we did, did a mutual one. And I said, no affiliate links and let's just recommend. Um, and I went in and used the tool, of course, and made sure I actually became a customer for quite some time. I only did it with one of them. I didn't do it with, with a bunch, but it was a pretty nice way to go. And in this case, you could do it where you don't even need to have that list and do the reciprocal mailing. You could say, hey, you know, would you be willing to promote? Here's, here's what you get out of it. So I think there's ways to be creative with this. And I, I do think that affiliate stuff, while some people just take it too far and make it really spammy, I think there are viable ways to make it work both in the info product space and in software. So thanks for the question, Davis. I hope that was helpful. My next question is from Jacob about launching a startup for the service slash hospitality industry through COVID. He says, hey, Rob, big fan. I've been listening to you since I was in high school. I'm bootstrapping a startup that's a self-serve reputation management tool for the service slash hospitality industry. It's called GrowGlad, and it helps you turn unhappy customers into happy customers and happy customers into advocates through SMS and machine learning. As you can imagine, this is probably the worst time in history to launch this, which is why it's just sitting on a server right now, not live. Luckily, I'm gainfully employed, so I'm not desperate to launch it. However, I've sunk quite a bit of money into it. I run growth marketing for a successful tech company, but even with my experience, I can't figure out how to launch this company in the midst of COVID when restaurants and service-based shops can't pay the bills. I've considered footing the bill for customers for up to three months, but that would wipe out my savings. What would you recommend based on your startup experience? Thanks. 
it seems pretty cut and dry to me. I would not launch it right now. I don't see any way. I mean, the only way would be literally to launch it and say you can use it and don't pay for three or six or nine months. And as you said, that would wipe out your savings. So I don't, I don't see that as a viable option. In your shoes, I would just sit and wait. You're gainfully employed. You don't have a gun at your head or a deadline to launch this. And I would wait until things start to ease up and, and get, you know, or continue to ease up and just the, the environment becomes more conducive to this. And and it's just probably a, a bit of bad luck that this happened. Uh, obviously, you've probably been working on this since long before COVID, and that's a bummer. But you know, as a startup founder, we have to be agile. We have to make last-minute, quick decisions with incomplete information. And frankly, on this one, I think you do have more than enough information to uh, make a sensible decision. So thanks for the question. All right, and on to our last question of the day from Casey Collins. He says, hey, Rob, I know you mention often that a founder should start small by building a WordPress plugin. So breaking in here, stair-step approach to bootstrapping doesn't specifically say WordPress plugin. That is one of the examples. But step one of the stair-step approach is to build a small thing that's relatively easy to build and sell on a one-time basis just so you can cut your teeth and learn some basic skills, make a little money before you try to do the, the hard stuff. I would say SaaS is harder than a lot of, of these things. Back to Casey's email. Do you have any suggestions for alternatives to that? What about an Office 365 or G Suite add-on? Any idea if paid-for products in those marketplaces get any traction? So my answer would be, I think those are great ideas. The, the idea is not to stick to any one of these. I often say WordPress plugin, info product, Shopify add-on. I throw out kind of random stuff. The commonality there usually is that there is a marketplace where you can easily get discovered. And that's the part that I think will help you get, it helps you get distribution without having to learn how to do all the marketing and all the, you know, all the other things around building a brand from scratch. And you can piggyback on these larger apps like G Suite or Office 365. So I don't have intimate knowledge of Office 365 or G Suite add-ons, but I bet you could go do research, find out are there forums where they hang out. You could DM some people. You could just try to build a quick one in a weekend and launch it and see what happens. I mean, there's, there's a bunch of ways to do this. I don't know if any of those add-ons are paid. That would, you know, again, be a research thing. But there are obviously many other ideas. I mean, there's Magento add-ons. Obviously, there's WordPress plugins. There's themes. There's Shopify. There's Photoshop add-ons. I believe, does Squarespace have a marketplace? That would be one I'd look at. Drupal, Salesforce has their whole, you know, Salesforce cloud ecosystem. Even like the ThemeForest family of companies, there's a bunch of Envato and a few others where they, they sell things. And of course, they take a cut. And of course, you know, I don't think you're going to build a million dollar software company there. But can you build something doing two, three grand a month? Yeah, I think so. And maybe you have to get a little lucky. Maybe you have to put in, you know, a bit of hard work. You're going to build some skill. But it's doing it with training wheels. And once you've done that, well, you learn how to write the code, how to ship the code, how to support it, how to do some type of copywriting and, you know, how to interact with customers. And then you can kind of move up. You can get a few more of those and kind of pay for your time. The one thing that I do mention that is not in these ecosystems is I've often said like create an ebook or a course and launch that. And that those can also obviously be one, you know, one time. And with those you may have to build an audience. Like if you just write an ebook, you're probably gonna have to build an audience first because that's gonna be, you're not gonna be able to run ads to it. And if you don't have people who know, like, and trust you, it's gonna be gonna be a hard way to go. So ebook may be one that, you know, if you don't already have an audience, then you look at the others. I do think building a course now that there are the Udemy's and the Udacity's and the, what, the Teachable's and, you know, there's, there's this whole class of kind of course marketplaces. It's basically the same thing, right? 
building courses, recording yourself, talking to a screen and having some expertise and editing it and then getting it in there and getting some discoverability, probably doing some marketing on your own, but you don't have to do all of the work. And again, this is not the end all be all. If you've already you know, sold a seven figure SaaS app or you've already built up a bunch of your skills or you already have a head start, then, then I wouldn't go back to step one. But if you've never had a successful product, this is just such a good way to, to go about learning how to do that. And if you want to see examples of founders who've done that, Google stair-step approach to bootstrapping. I give a bunch of examples in there, and I probably know two or three more dozen that, that I didn't know about you know, when I published that blog post. So thanks for the question, Casey. Sorry I couldn't answer the specifics about Office 365 or G Suite specifically. And frankly, you know, a lot of these marketplaces I don't have intimate knowledge of, but I, I do see people having success in them. And assuming that there are paid add-ons, I have to imagine that there are some people having success in those marketplaces as well. So good luck, sir. Thanks for writing in. And that wraps us up for the day. If you have a question for me or me and a guest in a future episode, just send it to questions at startupfortherestofus.com. If you send it as an attached voicemail or as a Dropbox or Google Drive link, then that goes to the top of the stack. But I always appreciate text questions as well. Love to hear from you and hear how the community is thinking about things and the challenges folks are facing and thinking through. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks so much for joining me. I'll talk to you next week.